Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Refuting Marxist Inconsistency, Capital and the TSSI series. This week we continue our close reading of Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marxist Capital and parse as best as we can Chapter 7. To follow along, it's probably best to have the book open in front of you, but not essential. You can also listen along to the unedited episode on YouTube where you can see the sections under discussion. If you'd like to comment, please do so on the YouTube video. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also, make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can also join me on Facebook. This week I have the new Patreon subscriber to thank, Miguel C. The patrons really help me produce these shows. You too can help by signing up. You can even get to hear the episodes a few days before the plebs. Goddamn plebs. Okay, to the discussion. Hello and welcome to part seven of Reclaiming Marx's Capital, the TSSI series. We have got quite a full panel here today. Let's do some introductions. Who will we go to first? Let's go to the table meister, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, how are you today? I am fantastic, Tom. How are you? Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to talking about simultaneous valuation once again. Uh, we should just re-record, re just put out the same episode six times. Nobody would notice. Now, over next, we've got C. Derek Barron over there in the beautiful state of Utah with his Mormon friends. Derek, how's it going? Um, pretty good. And yeah, the answer to the question of the chapter is no. No, there you go. De all, the, all the way from Utah. Thanks for that, Derek. Very uh, concise. Gregory Chaitan would be proud of that algorithmic information and density. Now, next over to Lexi, who is over in, I don't know where Lexi is. Lexi, tell us where the hell you are. I'm on the East Coast. I'm, I'm around New York City. That's about as specific as I'm going to get. <laughs> <laughs> you're going as, as specific as you're going to get or as you're going to tell us yes <laughs> yes um, okay and lastly but not least we have got a return to the pod of the mashed up marx figure who is puya puya how are you hello tom i'm, I'm doing well <clears throat> how about you i am excellent ready Great. and raring to get into chapter six it's been too long we missed last week we we're all a bit tired and emotional after the previous mm. week Still had a few tables to get together for the last episode. So we're into chapter six here. And this chapter is called, Was Marx a Simultaneist? Now, who wants to take the introduction today? Emmanuel, there you go. Right. So just like in the last episode where we said that if you are convinced that simultaneous valuation ends up in physicalism, and it's not compatible with Marx because of, you know, equating past and future values, then just go ahead and skip the entirety of chapter five. Likewise, this chapter uh, deals with whether or not Marx actually himself held or prescribed to simultaneous conceptions and had a simultaneous theory. And if you think that sounds unlikely, seeing as how it leads to things that necessarily contradict his theory, then you can go ahead and, and skip this too. However, if you're not convinced, Andrew is going to go through some textual support. He's going to repeat some arguments that he made back in chapter four about charitable interpretation. 
And he's going to make an annoyingly persuasive case why Marx couldn't have been a simultaneist. So this is for those of you who are still unconvinced. And by the end of this chapter, I think it's just, he almost goes into overkill. It's it's like, you know, beating a dead horse almost. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much uh, chapter six. The answer to which, as Derek said, is no. <laughs> or at least it would be very improbable. Yeah, the name of the chapter is, was Marx a simultaneist? That being the question. It could all, almost be like a scientific joke because in science papers, particularly particularly in, in psychology, whenever an article uh, or a research paper has the title of a question, the answer is always no, because otherwise you just state whatever you've found as the... <laughs> it's a very similar tendency in journalism. There's one line here I think that's good in this little introduction. It says, if his value theory is consistent, then its theoretical premises cannot be simultaneist. If conversely, Marx did employ simultaneist premises, then his theory must be inconsistent. Like, that's the chapter, I think. I like that line. More or less. I think the, uh, the next section kind of pulls okay. out a little more of why he's so, you know, he seem, he's seemingly so absolutist about this. Like, you know, if you just look at his conclusions, you're not looking at how he gets there. Because I think his method in this chapter, and again, you know, we're gonna we're gonna start going over the math, and listeners will will understand why that's not the crux of a lot of our <laughs> intuitions here. But the, the the basic point that emerges in the second section is that all Kleiman really needs to show is that the passages in question, the ones that are brought out by Simultaneous as proving that Marx thinks their way. Kleiman doesn't say that he has to prove that that's not how you can read it. He says, all I, have to, all I have to do is prove that you can read it in this other way, in in this temporalist way. And because of the logical inconsistency underneath simultaneous Marxism, then the temporal interpretation just trumps it because it makes sense of the text. So it's fine that, yes, there's ambiguity in, in, in Marx's prose. Yeah, so since we're not reading a work of literature... <laughs> In that sense, the heuristic of charity would mean you always pick the logical consistent reading because that's more charitable to the author and also just makes more sense. And so then it would automatically lead you to pick that the temporal system doesn't lead to the inconsistencies. Therefore, if we apply the heuristic of charity, we don't need to prove that you can't read it another way. We just need to prove that the other way leads to all these other problems. This doesn't. Therefore, the more consistent reading is where you should go. I mean, and you'd be surprised that that seems like utterly intuitive, but it's actually not taught that much. And I, I was, what surprised me about this debate in a way is that I would expect that to be a mistake that like weird literature people make that, you know, like Frederick Jamison's, you know, literary theory of, of Das Kapital or whatever, but it seems to be a consistent thing amongst people who should know better. Mm. Well, you know, my and 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 another thing that comes up in in this chapter on like interpretation, etc., is whether or not you should like hone in and zoom in on this one time that Marx says something that could be said to support the simultaneous interpretation, or whether you should look at his whole body of work and his theory as a whole and 
try to uh, extract the meaning of, of those specific quotes from the context of the whole body of work or if you should like be nitpicky and like well Marx kind of says that he's a simultaneous in this one sentence and so therefore uh, Andrew you're wrong yeah the, the exact wording such interpretation should be rejected if they at first such being ones that lead to inconsistency seem to some readers to result in a more natural reading of this and that contested passage taken in isolation. If the alternative interpretation was truly arbitrary or forced, they could explain one way or another the individual case of inconsistency. Yet because it is so difficult to make various parts of the text fit together into a coherent whole, it is highly implausible that an interpretation establishes a textual coherence is, is a congruity of ad hoc apologetics on the author's behalf. So don't, in other words, don't proof text for your theory in a way that would make everything else make no sense. I, I, I was I was looking for a, a quote that I thought was so, such a good burn in this chapter, and I couldn't find it, but now Tom highlighted it. Would we need to throw out the baby with the bathwater, as it were, if we are to accept that Marx was a simultaneous? And he just goes through this fucking burn, which is insane. I, I laughed out loud when I read it. Yeah. <laughs> I forget, because we mentioned this in an episode before, and I forget what it was, but... I was describing my experience with analytical Marxism and Karl Marx's theory of history and being like, whoa, this is such a cool reconstruction. It really does a good job of putting Marx's intuitions on solid ground. And then you turn to these kinds of Marxist economics, and then you find the rate of profit falls under circumstances in which his own simultaneous premises imply it must rise. Surplus labor is the exclusive source of profit, although his simultaneous premises imply that it is not. Value is determined by labor time, although simultaneous premises imply that labor time is redundant. <laughs> uh, that just does nothing. That goes double for the political implications of the economic theory. This is boilerplate, right? But how many times has Marx propped up for politics he would have probably tried to personally destroy? Uh, an awful lot. Uh, it, it's interesting because I've been reading that book that Puya put us on to the Grossman one. What is it? The, the Law of and, Accumulation and Breakdown of the Capital System. That's the one. And mm -hmm. it's interesting in that because in that he spends a lot of time talking about, you know, the difference between the organic composition of capital and, say, the technological state of a society. He is trying to talk about getting into this idea of scientific socialism and how that the falling rate of profit links into what Marx's thoughts were about socialism or communism being the next stage of development of human society. And it seems to me like I wouldn't be surprised if because of the like disasters of communist experiment of the 20th century, that a lot of them feel like some kind of want to just escape from that element of scientific socialism. I, I feel like they they feel like they want to throw out the falling rate of profit and all that that entails. I don't know what people think about that. Yeah, I mean, that broadly comports with my feeling. Now, we go into chapter 6.3. Now, this is a part mm -hmm. of the book that I think is, well, there are some problems with, there is some mathematical stuff in it that I've emailed Andrew about wondering how he worked out those equations and he says he can't remember and also that there is an error in the equations so we won't get into the equations bit too much but i think we'll discuss just the general idea and leave it at that without going into the maths does anybody have any objections to that i think the math is confusing 
And it, as you stated, it's quite possibly erroneously printed, so it would be nearly impossible to fix anyway. So let's yeah. just state this in words. Okay. Well, Emmanuel, you uh, before we before we started, you said you kind of had a good grasp of this stuff. So do you want to have a goal at this part? Okay. So the idea here is that some people claim that Marx was an equilibrium theorist, i.e. that over time, rates of profit would tend towards an equilibrium, such as we saw in one of our earlier episodes back in table 2.2, how the price rate of profit and how the value rate of profit equalized. And so that's sort of a point of of contention. Uh, was Marx an equilibrium theorist? And Andrew says no. And the some you know other theorists say yes. And they both refer to the same thing, that Marx all the time talks about averages. Many simultaneous authors, especially Serafians, argue in addition that Marx's prices of production and general rate of profit are static equilibrium magnitudes. The prices and rate of profit that would prevail in a situation in which there is no tendency for anything in the economy to change. But if prices are not changing, then input and output prices are equal. That's a sort of a conclusion from that premise. Thus, on this interpretation, Marx's prices of production are simultaneously determined. So without going too much into all the implications of this, the core question is, what does Marx mean by average? Does he mean uh, a tendency for things to equalize in the long run? Or does he mean by average an average? So in order to illustrate this, uh, instead of the confusing math and, 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 and graphs in this chapter, imagine something like supply and demand, right? So in general equilibrium theory, they're going to say that, yes, supply and demand, they're going to, in reality, fluctuate around each other. But in the long run, viewed over time, the supply is going to tend to equal the demand. This is not the same thing as saying that supply and demand on average will be equal, okay? So if there is a difference between equilibrium and average, and Kleiman says there is, Kleiman is here on this on the school of when Marx says average, he really does mean average. He does not mean long-term tendency or, or, or equalization or anything. But the equilibrium theorists interpret Marx in such a way that when Marx says that the average rates of profit, with the average rate and the general rate of profit, etc., they claim that what he means by average is the same thing as equilibrium theorists mean by long-term equilibrium. So uh, it's a it's a matter of interpretation, but I, I but Kleiman here is going to make the case for why Marx probably just means average, no more, no less, and why it matters. So I was going to ask a question about this, and it's tangential but kind of important. He does cite some other people who agree with him, so that, like so this is not unique to mm -hmm. Kleiman at all. But does anyone know what the standard reading of this was? When did when did people start reading, trying to read Marx as an equilibrium theorist? Um, because I, I, yeah. I, it seems like it wouldn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to. You. Also, given that pretty much nobody was when Marx was writing, like right. I think it was post Sraffa, to be honest. 
like I understand this to be part of a sort of Western Marxist descent. That this is not like this Marxist Leninist immortal science kind of reading. Right. So I was just making sure because like, for example, climbing coach Joan Robinson in 1967 stating mm-hmm. this as if it was like, duh, but just to remind you, um, I mean, the actual yeah. quote is there's no tendency of the, of the long-term equilibrium or the average rate of profit is not an equilibrium rate or the surprise or the surprise price of capital. It is simply an average sharing the total surplus, which at any moment the capitalist system has succeeded in generating. And that seems like it would have been transparently obvious before the Schaeffer controversy or maybe just equilibrium theory being imposed on it in general because the analytic Marxists do it too. Yeah. If Marxists should take any post-Keynesian seriously, it's Joan Robinson. Over and over, everything I've like seen quoted from her about Marx is like, it's she's not a Marxist, but you know, she's like clearly capable of reading him in a way that like a lot of more known figures tend not to. I think that's probably because she's from a weirdo tendency. She also just tends to state the obvious meaning of the text, which is weirdly refreshing, but not everyone does it. I mean, economists, economists, Derek. Fair enough. Do you want to just describe maybe what you mean as well by this little graph? Or do you think that's more confusing than it's worth necessary? Uh, I think I kind of think that ah. graph it might be useful. Yeah, I like this graph. Puya, do you want to have a go? Okay, so Kleiman starts out by saying, okay, this is how average and equilibrium can diverge. He says that if an equilibrium rate is 25%, yet prices have a tendency to fall, the average rate of profit can diverge from this equilibrium rate quite a lot. And then he makes us a graph here that kind of illustrates his point. He shows that um, here the long-run average is quite different from the static equilibrium. He says it's a 10% difference. Here we see an average of 22.5%, and you see it's a gravitational process instead of a static, you know, just a steady state. Yeah, I think this graph really helps illustrate his point that um, average and equilibrium can diverge. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty much it. Excellent. Okay, so let's, let's move on here to part 6.2, which I think is the most important thing of this chapter, where we get into this idea of replacement cost and this is going to get into the debates about whether Mosley's interpretation of how goods are revalued and how Andrew and the TSSI makes the claim that they are revalued. Okay, and the argument really gets into the difference between how do we value newly produced goods, which is kind of interesting. But okay, so let's have a look here. Okay, does anybody want to take on this part? Who wants to take on this part? Well, I guess I can go over the little example. Yeah, the table is really helpful, too. Yeah, he pretty much starts out in this table, and he shows how um, the cost of apples being used as means of production can change over time. So he starts with an apple. He says yesterday this apple was produced at 2 p.m. Its value is uh, $0.60. Even though this apple's price changes through time, the value when it... um, enters into production is 50 cents. So although this value can change, it does not change the fact that the apple went was paid for and went into production at a certain price, which is 50 cents. 
So we see that over time, this Apple's price is changing. So the capitalist goes out, they produce their Apple, its value is 60 cents. The Apple is sold at 55 cents, and then it goes into production at 50 cents. When it comes out of production, it is worth 45 cents. So, so this is this is just the same thing that we were saying in the the, the Tom you were saying in the last episode about uh, the value transferred by constant capital uh, depending on it, its its price at the moment in which it enters into production, and that we've also been saying actually from from day one that the TSSI holds that it's the price at the point of production that matters and not what your computer mainframe may be worth after you've produced whatever it is that you've produced and you go to market and you see that oh if you know our machines would break down now they cost this and this much to replacement to replace them and then that somehow harkens back and you know decreases the value transferred back in time so yeah that's because that's really what the the replacement cost interpretation implies is that if I buy a computer today at a thousand dollars I use that to produce something the next day the same model of computer costs a hundred dollars the replacement cost people are going to say that the value of what you produced has now fallen because the price of the computer that you used to produce it has fallen after it's it's been produced. So it sort of does a back in time okay. kind of thing, which is its uh, connection to um, simultaneism is that the value can transfer backwards in time, which goes against the successivist and uh, temporal nature of Marx's argument. So, <clears throat> so this is at the, at the last episode, we spent a lot of time on the value transferred by the seed in, in that example. I, I went on at some length about why it matters. This is exactly, exactly the reason that the value of the, the, the machinery that you use is the same value as the one that enters into the, into the production process if you use the same V. That was the reason why our economy couldn't grow is that we use the same V at the end of the process as we use at the beginning. And this is why the replacement cost interpretation simply must be false because it directly leads to simultaneism. And the reason it does that is that it pretty much says that, you know, value is determined retroactively in the production of new commodities. Basically, um, the point that I wanted to say is that like I had a lot of trouble with this when I was first reading the book and the thing that really helped me was to try to get a grip on the concepts of historical cost, um, reproduction cost and replacement cost and like try to carve up exactly which one was which. Emmanuel, are these standard accounting terms? Not well, I they might have been at, at some point in time. I, what I can say is that they're, they're all sort of strange from current accounting laws because you can't really change the, the value of your assets at your whim, uh, depending on which, which country you live in. Um, however, the, the, the interpretation that's 
most in tune with what the what the law um, tends to fall on in, in in correct accounting is the 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 TSSI interpretation, which is I mean <clears throat> the 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 most accurate one that you're like the the default one is the historical cost. So okay. you paid you paid a thousand dollars for your uh, for your I don't know the, the no MacBook costs a thousand dollars, but just go with it. All right, so that's what ends up in your balance sheet. The value of of, of that, the, the the amount of capital that is bound in in that MacBook Air, is going to decrease by the use of it or the average lifespan of it. So the, the the historical cost is the default one. However, the sort of principles underlying it are more similar to the TSSI interpretation. But most for most people doing and, and calculating the way that the TSSI would uh, does would be illegal. But that's just to keep people from artificially inflating or deflating their assets. I, I will say that it it is. In, in financial accounting, the TSSI is spot on because the, the increase or decrease in value happens before you sell your stock, for instance. So in, in when it comes to financial assets, these are updated in real time. And whenever you exchange them for money or do something else with it, the it's calculated at the point of at which it's either exchanged or you do anything with it. So it's the the value of the of your assets at the time of any sort of action that is usually done in, in accounting. So yeah, I was thinking that too because I used to work in accounts receivable way back before I became a teacher in legal accounting, and I remember the laws governing that made it operate differently than when you were trying to figure out stock prices for your company. And the stock prices do remind me of the TSSI. I'm sorry. I'm pointing yeah, because the, the TSSI is, is trying to get at what, what actually happens, right? Um, uh, real estate is, is, is another area where you, where you're legally allowed or actually you're uh, in Sweden, at least legally enforced to do it the TSSI way. Yeah. It's the same um, in the United States. Yeah. The replacement cost thing is it's what you do in insurance, which I used to work in. So this is not new. Like I, right. this, this was, even though you guys asked me to say, I have trouble explaining this, but this intuitively made sense to me because of my like insurance background. That's why like as a consumer, you tend to lose value when you get your insurance payout because it's done at replacement cost, not historical cost. Well, it's done at replacement cost modified by use. And 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 it's the the reason that insurance companies do it by replacement cost and not by the standard method, and why they're allowed to do that is uh, essentially to make sure that they can turn a profit, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and yeah, yeah, less than 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 they had to because if they would have to pay out any other amount, basically, then. Um, they would be screwed. But say, so, insurance is actually a very low profit margin business, which is something people don't really get. Yeah, and and the and the revaluation back in time, which is what replacement cost does, uh, is pretty much the only reason why they can operate even at such such low margins. Would insurance so, not also have to do with taking an account of depreciation? Mm -hmm. is yeah, it, it, does, it, it does take account of appreciation, but not fairly <laughs> no because because de depreciation should 
by standard accounting practice. And this is again why I think it, you know if you know if you know a bit of uh, business economics or or accounting, Marx makes so much more sense because he's really just reiterating common accounting practice. But the the general rule, the general principle is that the value depreciation, because it's exactly equal to the cost, i.e. how much of that constant capital, how much of that machinery you've used up within the accounting period, it should be directly proportional to how much value is transferred to the product. But you're also allowed it because that, you know, if, if, if that were enforced in law, then nobody would be able to do accounting because, you know, how do you, what would you go about figuring out how exactly how many dollars worth of MacBook Air you've used in your first year, right? So the other way that you're allowed to do it is you calculate the average lifespan of a machine of the same kind. And then you assume that you're going to use it constantly every year which Marx also does, which is why he calls it constant capital. Generally, in, in accounting, you would do that with historical cost, though the correct way to do it would be the TSSI way, but it's not allowed because if it were allowed, it would create havoc and uh, havoc, and, and people would be able to cheat very effectively on their, yeah. on their taxes and, and, and stuff. But it's, it's formally with regards to the principles, the right way to do it. What was the cost of your MacBook Air? Not when you bought it. So if you buy your MacBook Air, MacBook Air year one, you just let it sit on the shelf. You don't even open it. It's in mint condition. And year two, you start producing with it. All right. Formally, you should then revalue your MacBook Air to the price that it costs when it entered production. So you should uh, have year two in your balance sheet. Uh, I like a bit of Havoc myself. Um, <laughs> we, <we'd>, uh... <laughs> I'm sorry. But, but before, we move on, before we move on, have we stated what these three terms mean specifically, like just as a definition? Historical cost is what it costs at purchase Pre-production, reproduction, purchase at, or at production. At purchase. At purchase. Cost is purchase. Pre-production cost is at the moment it enters production, and post or replacement cost is cost of it now, after production. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So okay, there's cool. you one you bought it at the minute it entered production, and then the post-production or replacement cost. It's interesting. Just with all you're talking about, you two guys there, Derek and Emmanuel, talking about. The replacement cost stuff and accountants and stuff. I was just watching, rewatching an episode today, an episode, <laughs> a talk from the Left Forum, one of the MHI ones, and I had Clyman Freeman and Michael Hudson on as well. And they were talking about how Marx was in a letter to Engels had said, you know, that every time there's an argument between the economists and the statisticians, the statisticians are right 99% of the time. <laughs> and I think, you know, probably the accountants, I don't know if he means the accountants in that scenario, but I, I'd say he probably does. Can we move on to the next bit of the, the next chapter, where it, next subchapter where it's talking about the evidence. Are we good to go? Yeah, pretty much. If I were Andrew, I would have put that quote in the beginning of my book and really played that up. It's a damn yeah. good quote. I, I, I don't have the exact one, but I'll have to... Check it up. Maybe I'll put it as a as a gift for this episode or something. Right. Okay. So 
Now, this stuff gets very wordy, okay? there Some of this stuff, for me, is very intricate, and oh, I don't mean, know... You mean capital? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the quotations yeah. from capital? Yeah. 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 This is actually the part where I felt more, a little bit more secure because it's philology. <laughs> but this yeah. stuff, like, like that. Not... And, and also, like, <laughs> can we talk about how this really should end fucking all debate? I mean, these quotes, man, especially the first one seems like a slam dunk example of why climate is right. Why don't you take that first quote then and I'll get it here. All right. So the, the reason that this is confusing is it because it talks about shillings and sixpences, which no one understands. But, you know, suppose that the price of cotton is one day sixpence a pound. And the next day, as a result of the failure of the cotton crop, a shilling a pound. All right. So fuck that. Let's just say, suppose that the price of cotton is one day, one cent a pound. A shilling was 12 pence, an old, old, old pence. So it's six oh pence and then it's 12 pence. 12 and yeah. oh. so one day it's five cents uh, a pound. And the next day, because of a crop failure, it's double that. So 10 cents a pound. Each pound of the cotton bought at five cents and worked up after the rise in value transfers to the product a value of 10 cents. And the cotton already spun before the rise and perhaps circulating in the market as yarn similarly transfers to the product twice its original value. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and and the, the next quote, if the price of a raw material rises, cotton, for example, cotton that has not yet been worked up but is still in the warehouse, rises just as much in value as cotton that is still in the course of manufacture, right? Let's say you have two companies, one, uh, both of them produce yarn. One has a religious holiday, so the, the cotton just sits in the warehouse. The other is some sort of, you know, they're, they're atheists or whatever, or they have no labor laws. They keep producing yarn. The, the price of the raw material, cotton, increases. Uh, Marx is saying that the cotton that is in the machine in company two has risen by the same amount as the, as the cotton in the warehouse. And he continues, as the retrospective expression of more labor time, this cotton adds a higher value to the product, which it goes into as a component, than it possessed originally. And the capitalist paid for it. Ta-da! There you go. That's chapter six, folks. <laughs> well, but that's, well, that repudiates historical cost valuation, but that's not really the, that's not the problem. Yeah, let's right. read this little, little uh, Lexi. You take this little bit there, Lexi. <clears throat> sure. These passages clearly repudiate historical cost valuation, but that is not in dispute. As discussed above, both the simultaneist interpretation and the TSSI deny that already existing stocks of commodities retain their original values after the change in the price of cotton. They both hold that the change in the cotton's price causes a revaluation of the already existing stocks. The Kleiman's basic point here is that, like, you can't look at, like, we're going to rule out one of these things. You know, he, he spelled out those three terms, historical cost, replacement cost, the uh, the other one, I can't remember. 
pre-production cost. It's pre-production cost. But it also spells out the reason why he cites these two passages in particular is that they're cited by simultaneous. They're they're cited by Mosley. So I'll read the next one because it's actually kind of actually kind of important. The TSA may at first seem incompatible with the end of the first passage, since Mark states that the value transferred from the cotton to the yarn rises retroactively after the cotton enters production. Yet the yarn was previously produced, spun before the rise in value. While the sole controversial question is how the value of newly produced commodities is determined, there actually is no compatibility. If anything, the two pa passages seem to support TSSI rather than the replacement cost interpretation. They seem to suggest that more value is transferred from cotton to yarn because the cotton is worth more when it was pr in production. It is worked up after the rise in value. In order to specify the amount of value the cotton transfers, Marx tells us that its price when it is worked up, the information that the replacement cost interpretation deems necessary, the cotton's price when it is completed is never mentioned. That's what I think yeah. is actually the slam dunk. Um, yeah. There you go. That, 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 that's why I said, like, yeah, that's that's chapter six, folks. This is why I can't make th these quotes even make the, the replacement cost interpretation really iffy because the, the replacement, the, he, he doesn't speak about replacement cost. He, 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 he says the price of cotton in the spindle in company two rises because there's a rise in value in cotton and that rise is the same thing as the rise in the of the cotton in the warehouse nowhere does he say that but when the yarn is completed they take their their stocks of the company too the one that's producing takes their takes stock of their yarn and they retroactively revalue it to the replacement cost that he, he doesn't talk about replacement cost he, he talks about changes in value when Shit happens. Okay, we have an, an enormous quote here full of numbers. Unless, Derek, you want to take this, because this I just found absolutely torturous to get my head through this. In shorthand, Mosley cites the, a bunch of... I mean, he basically wrote through um, a bunch of citations from the economic manuscripts of 1861 1863, but trying to use them to uphold the valuation. TSSI explains all these passages and also doesn't require finding words that don't exist in those in those passages. The end. I mean, like I could go through it, but it it's basically it's basically arguing over wording in these specific passages that Mosley that he that Kleinman is basically saying Mosley's kind of superimposing a reading on that's not there. Justifiable reading, but it's not there. Yeah, and, and 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 also because I I kept like reading and rereading these these passages be before I got to Kleiman's explanation of it, and it just seems to me that number four and five directly contradicts the, the replacement cost interpretation, like they they would make no sense. If... Let's read those. Let's read these. Let me highlight these bad boys here. So he he talks about you know prices fluctuating when commodities enter into production and are made into new commodities. This is an issue that we help that we have to deal with. And then he says that this change in the value of the material and means of labor involves absolutely no alteration in the circumstance that in the labor process into which they enter uh, as material and means they are always pre-posited as given values all right he says they enter as given values prices fluctuate but when they enter production 
They're given. If it's given when it enters production, then it can't be determined after production. There you go. Yeah. I mean, values of a given magnitude. And For in this process itself, they only emerge as values insofar as they entered as values. The only reason that, this matters so much is because Mosley uses parts two, three, six, and seven, and ten. Even though he, this is a quote, I believe, from Mosley, all the weird excerpts mm. of that and being involved to make his points, ignoring four and five. Like even though he quotes it, that's the issue, and it's a textual argument. And I know that makes Tom's eyes glaze over, but it's it's one that says, look, if you look at it empirically, it's going to look like TSSI. If you look at what's actually written and actually read all of it carefully it still looks like tssi ipso facto tssi is more coherent therefore the end yep i thought andrew's arguments here were very convincing okay i think we should move on to the next bit because i found actually disconfirming evidence subchapter i found this very convincing um especially you know i think it was the last last time we were discussing it two weeks ago in the last episode we were discussing how i had like a, a freak out when I was on holidays and I suddenly thought Mosley was right and the TSSI was wrong. And on that episode, I was saying like that Mosley is doing a good, a good faith misreading. But when I read again, this chapter, anew during the last week or whatever, I read it again and had this stuff fresh in my mind. You know, the evidence, the counter evidence is, is overwhelming when it comes to say their replacement cost versus the pre-production cost i i just find it i don't know what i'm saying whether i'm saying that i i got rolled back on my good faith argument but i what i would say is that i think the evidence is overwhelming in the tssi's favor so let's have a look i've highlighted a couple of bits here let's i find this little bit pretty damning here at least from the 1857 to 1858 grundrisse onwards Marx held that the production process results in the preservation of the amount of labor already objectified in used up means of production and thus preserves the previously existing value of capital. Like, that's it. Boom. That's it. So like, it. if there's no, if there is no change, that's just it. There's no getting around that for me. That's just it. And here, let's have a look at this next bit. Um, the previously existing value of means of production reappear, reappear in the product. Subsequent works, including the chapter on constant capital and variable capital in Capital Volume 1 that develops this notion systematically, also refer quite frequently to the preservation and reappearance and synonymously the transfer of the existing value. Such terminology is explicitly temporal. It suggests that a sum of value already in existence before production emerges from production unchanged i do not see how this can be reconciled with the replacement cost interpretation and i gotta agree when we get to this like you know this idea of hermeneutics i don't think there is any case to be made for the replacement cost there's just no logical there's no reasonable way from reading the entirety of capital that you can get to that idea it just doesn't make sense Usually you don't, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is capital isn't what's cited for a lot of replacement costs. It's, it's the economic manuscripts of 61 to 63. And again, Kleinman points out that even there, you don't, there's not a deviation. It's consistent when the Gurdisa and Cap and Capital too. So, it, you know, there's, you, you're having to, it might be an honest misreading. 
Um, I'm not accusing anyone of bad faith. I actually do think Mosley probably is acting in good faith, but he's at, he, good faith, but motivated reasoning because he's having to ignore a lot to come up with that conclusion. Yeah. And, uh, good faith in one sense of the term, but not the other, not copping to the uh, assumptions he's making. Yeah. It's cherry picking, you know, you know, with good well, faith. <laughs> one thing that uh, might be a deviation from the book a little bit, but I thought was interesting is how this comes up in his other book, the failure of capitalist production, when he's talking about the historical costs and the current costs oh, of the yeah. fixed assets, how, and how this uh, theoretical issue is like relevant to the looking at the empirical system, like yeah. in uh, determining the rate of profit. Plus, like honestly, any other interpretation than TSSI would would go fundamentally against what any capitalist tries to do or how they think. My, my only my only question to that Emmanuel is assuming this is TSSI, and I've always had this question for the insistence that the only way to read this it would make sense of the way capitalists think is TSSI. Is are you saying then that most Marxist economists? held to a version of TSSI that was simply unstated before the 50s? Because, I mean, because, like, like, for example, we've talked about this. I don't think, like, Ernest Mandel actually disagrees with Kleiman that much on anything. No, they co-edited um, a book, right? Right. Or was that um, Freeman? That's Freeman. Is it just that these assumptions were so ingrained that they didn't have to systematize it? I think, I think Derek, that it's this kind of idea of the, you know, academic Marxian, post-Keynesian types do all do it this way. And all the kind of radical Marxist economists would have read Marx the normal way that we would think the TSI works. Right. So they, they wouldn't have to yeah. state the TSI because it would just been common sense. Common right. sense. Yeah, I mean, and it didn't because, exist because it is common sense. If, if you try to interpret Marx as, as an economist, particularly as an economist of his time and time period, and particularly as an economist who learned by studying the, the, the great classics and the actually existing economic theory of the time and the actually existing economic theory-like period, yes, the TSSI is just common sense, but I think a lot of this really stems from, you know, people trying to make, pe people who are either aren't economists or they're uh, macro economists and don't have any grasp on like business economics and things like that, which is a lot of the time what Marx was using. So, but, but, but again, like what I, I think, I think you have a point there, Derek, because one of my greatest contentions is I really don't think it's possible to read Marx in much of a different way. Not an because makes sense. he puts such an emphasis on the capital invested and whether or not capitalists get value from their investment. So if, you know, a MacBook Air is worth $1,000 at year one, but you don't start producing until year two and you wait 365 days, most capitalists will think that's a loss. Most capitalists want to start as soon as they purchase the equipment. Why would they want to do that if what matters what was if what mattered was the replacement cost? It it just it just makes no sense. They of course they they want to they want to start producing before everyone else buys the same machinery and the price of that machinery goes down. They want to be first. They want to be first on the ball. That's 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 capitalism. And in order to make that work, you have to do the TSSI interpretation.
this is why Marx, you know, states that it's the, you know, the, the value transferred because constant capital is dead labor. And he, he always talks about it in, in the sense that, you know, it, it starts transferring uh, it, it's, its value, you know, at the point of where you actually use it. I, I think that it's worth noting as well, like I think I said this before, but really it's worth noting that this way of looking at it didn't exist behind the Iron Curtain. It's a Western Marxist tradition. Right. Well, so, and also it doesn't exist amongst Trotskyists before the 60s either. Like, like, like that's why I keep on mentioning Mandel, because I'm, I'm picking from a tradition. It's not part of the MHI tradition. Like, it's, but the Iron Curtain didn't economy. exist when Marx wrote Capital or the Economic Manuscripts. Yeah, yeah, but also like Austrian economics didn't exist and Keynesian economics didn't exist. And like, yeah, sure, sure. But like, if we're interested in Marx's actual theory, then no, I'm no, I mean, I get it. But what what I'm saying, like, the errors of Stalinism are not these errors, they're not the errors that are coming up against the TSSI. But my, my point about this is just like when you say the TSSI is the only way of reading it. I, I want to emphasize that if we if we are saying that, we must say that the common sense interpretation of Moke's Marxist before the 50s, for the like Marx-Keynes hybrid thought, and using that to try to get around the Austrian Marx debates, seems to me to say that this was just a common sense reading. And of course they didn't have a they didn't have to call it the TSSI or the single system because like everybody just read it this way because it was common sense from the way they understood basic economics to work. And they weren't dealing with these later macro theories that changed some fundamental assumptions in a way that doesn't match with actual business practices. I mean one of the I I, I read um Debunking Economics by Stephen Keene and until I got to the last chapter where he starts shitting on Marx, I actually thought he was proving a lot of Marx's points by pointing out that that like businesses don't run the way macroeconomics or even the way a lot of microeconomics based on those assumptions describes. They just don't. Like anyone's ever worked in accounting would know that. Yeah, and that greater point about economic theory being so far from capitalist practice. That's what makes some of the stronger claims you're making a manual, like not something I'm going to jump on when you say like, well, the TSSI is the only way to make sense of this. Like it sounds, you know, dogmatic or something, but what Derek is saying, I think adds the necessary context that there was, there was a, a previous interpretation that makes more sense. That wasn't as ad hoc and distorted. And when, when you make an argument like that, I think a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction, especially if you're an erudite academic, is to say that you're being an antiquarian orthodox zealot. <laughs> if you're trying to bring up an old interpretation and say that it's superior to a new interpretation, this is the Whiggish. Um, right. No, I, so Whiggish so element. just to clarify, like I'm, I'm I'm not saying I'm not saying that the, the it's only the the TSSI. Like when I say the TSSI, what I what I mean, what I assume that the that the listener hears is that I think that TSSI is Marx's theory. And it's not that, you know, it's a dogmatic thing with climate in particular. It's just that, to me, it's it's obvious when you read Marx and what he's trying to get at, that Andrew is on, on the right track with regards to Marx's original writing. It seems to me that most other interpretations, just like you said, Derek, uh, are doing an after-the-fact counter overimposing of their own sort of modern understanding on, on onto a theory that really doesn't deal with any of those sort of things. 
I'm also going to say that the TSSI would not necessarily lead you to all the political or economic positions that climb in holes. I'm at, I'm going to say that too. My 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 theory is that TSSI systematizes a sort of a sort of way that people just all just naturally read this in not just in Russia but in general until the the 50s and 60s and those and those debates have made it where we need to state things that would have never needed to be stated before because we didn't have to talk about a temporal system people just knew how accounting worked that's interesting to me i also like to point out that uh, if you actually look how economic planners work they use a weird like if like in china for example they use a weird ad hoc of like general accounting practices and a little bit of marginal utility theory but not a lot so it 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 doesn't resemble what a lot of these like um later marxists are describing at all my my just my just point there is like is to kind of it's to back you up but it's to say like the reason why we have to say this in terms of tssi is we're systematizing something because of context now that would have just not been there in the past wouldn't have been necessary in the first place so what we're essentially saying is that we're all vatican one derek are you vatican one uh, I'm Councillor Trent, mofo. Councillor Trent, motherfucker. That means you're a Ricardian. Off. There it is, motherfucker. Now, um, I know that uh, Emmanuel won't be. He he won't be because he comes from Lutheranville. Sweden is just some kind of atheist Lutheran. I don't know. Hellhole, commie, hellhole. Um, yeah, did, commie. Good yeah. old commie in Sweden. Yep. Good old commie Sweden. Let's just <laughs> just to finish this off. Let's read. Uh, this another one of these but just to hammer the case home i'll read this one many passages in the economic manuscript of 1861 to 63 almost all of them from the early books one through seven state explicitly that the amount of value transferred depends upon inputs pre-production value the value of the material and means of labor only reappears in the product because the material and means of labor possesses this value before the labor process and independently of it. Raw materials and means of labor add to the labor time contained in the product only as much labor time as they themselves contained before the production process. The using up of an input in production increases the products, the commodity's value to the amount of its own value. Marx further specifies this means, to be precise, the value it has when it enters the process of production. A means of production does not add more value to the product than it possessed before production. As value, this part of capital therefore enters unchanged into the production process and emerges from it unchanged. Like, it's just impossible to deny the clarity of and the veracity of the TSSI one. It's, it's nearly, you know, it's like watching a strawway finding the heavyweight, you know. You know, mm-hmm. it's just getting plastered around the place. You know, in boxing, they got weight classes for reasons. You know, in hermeneutics, you know, you can't just pick one one tiny bit of the text. you got to take the whole goddamn thing. Yeah, I felt like that quote needed, like, air horns after it. Like, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> it, was, it was just, like, slam dunk. <laughs> that can be arranged, Puya. Yeah, world star. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hilarious. Okay, well, let's. We've kind of really thrashed that. Let's go on to the next bit of a chapter here. We have a table. I know these tables. I don't know how much 
point there is in talking through this table. This is a reconstruction of a table where Marx was having an argument with some dude called Ramsey about the profit rate. This has been recreated by Andrew from these texts. And it, in essence, just shows what we already... Well, Puya, do you like this table? Why do you like this table so much? Give it to us. Well, I think it just summarizes the whole point pretty well. And it's an example that Marx gives that pretty much repudiates the whole case that value is determined by the physical quantity and that instead it's determined by labor time. If you look at the table, he says, okay, so the capitalist advances $120 to start the circuit of capital. Before he goes to the market and he purchases commodities, corn, uh, other constant capital to the value of 80 and variable capital to the value of 40. And he says, both in both these years, there's the same amount of labor. But in one year, the output doubles. And he shows that, okay, so he accounts for all these values in terms of physical quantities in the first row. And you see that although in the second row, the output has increased twice the amount Marx himself considers this to be an equivalent amount of value because there's an equivalent amount of labor. And I think this is just a really clear, concise way to summarize the whole point. I think that's precisely correct. Look, let's just take it offline. We'll say thanks to everybody. Right. and we can, We'll let you go and we'll talk to you next time on the TSSI series. Bringing Marx back to life. Yo, motherfuckers. Boo, boo, boo. Yeah. Boo.